the children can go with uh, the whites and have a great time. And I'm back. They are right at the back there, and if you haven't had an opportunity to sign your kids in, you can go down with them, and there is a, uh, a kiosk-type stand there where you can register your kids and get them a sticker. Um, welcome to Renovation Church again. I'm glad uh, you made it. We had some sun this morning. Isn't that good? How many of you guys are enjoying the sun so far? Huh? Finally, a little bit of heat. Uh, my, my kids, a couple of my kids wore t-shirts today. I know it's only 50, but, but it just feels like you can just wear a t-shirt, right? It hits 30 or 40 for us, and I'm ready for shorts and a t-shirt. Um, I, I want to I wanna just start out by introducing myself, because I recognize that there is a number of new folks here, and as we've gathered in this new place and in this new building, um, I think we'd be remiss not to recognize that our, our, our core kind of group of folks that were meeting in a youth room on Sunday nights has begun to change, and we're seeing new faces and new families come through the door, and I know that Mike had announced that we're postponing our starting point to have just so much has been going on at Renovation Church, and, and we've decided to postpone it till next week, um, and that's really an opportunity to get to meet the eldership and, and get an idea of who we are and what we're about um, but just by way of introduction, my name is Jeremy Calley. I'm one of the elders here at, at Renovation Church. There are four of us that make up the eldership or the leadership team here at Renovation Church. Um, Paul Daly and Tim Bissell and Mike Maisie, who you've met already this morning, and myself. Three of us are what you would call bivocational. Does that make sense? Three of us have jobs. And Mike Maisie has a job, too. I'm not saying he doesn't, but Mike vocationally is our full-time elder, and he works full-time at Renovation Church. But the three of us also serve as elders. Paul, Paul Daly owns a business called Image Auto. Tim Bissell works for a ministry organization where he's doing a lot of church planning and traveling and working with church planters, um, as well as an elder here at Renovation Church. And I'm a prosecutor at the DA's office. Um, I'm the chief of the Special Victims Bureau here in Onondaga County. So I work uh, with a team of another seven attorneys as a part of the DA's office that prosecutes sex offenses and child abuse and domestic violence. Um, but my background is I, I had, my undergrad was in theology and I, and I served as a youth pastor for close to 10 years and did some church planting and then went to law school. That's a long story um, that I'm not going to get into this morning, but but we came together as a group of guys a number of years ago and uh, and planted a church called Missio Church in, in the city of Syracuse downtown, and as we saw God move in the planting of that church in the city of Syracuse, um, my heart, um, when we initially planted that church was... I live in Beaver. I grew up. I graduated from Baltimore High School. I grew up in the northern, western suburbs uh, of this area, and just have a heart for my community and for my people that 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 live in that area. And I, I remember when we were first starting to plant Missio, I said to the other uh, church planter that initially it was just me and a guy named Jordan Stendiano, and I said, "Listen, why don't we uh, why don't we do something in the suburbs?" He's like, "No, we got to go to the city." He grew up in the city. He said, "If we don't go to the city of Syracuse." First, we're never going to go to the city. And he was right. Um, and so we did that in the city of Syracuse. And God has blessed Missio Church uh, down on West Genesee Street now. We were all over the place. 
We started in the basement of the Baptist Convention, actually started in my living room, then went to the basement of the Baptist Convention, then we went to the Palace Theater, or no, Hedegar High School for a while, and then we were in the Palace Theater, and then, and then bought a building on West Tennessee Street, the old Presbyterian church there. But as that church began to be blessed and God moved in ways that really go beyond my ability to comprehend, um, we started a couple of small groups or missional communities in Baldwinsville and Liverpool, and we just noticed that, that people were coming and, and uh, God was using those small groups. And as people, people gathered in the suburbs around here, um, we made a conscious decision to not try to grow our church this way, but to try to grow this way. We just felt like God was asking us to be the type of people that not just planted a church, but that took responsibility for a geography. That said, we're going to care about the people in a particular area in a number of zip codes. And we drew a circle around a number of zip codes and just said, whatever, it's not about our church. It's not about our name. It's not about us getting big or our names becoming great. But it's how does God want to use us as a group of people to let the gospel be accessible to as many people as possible in a particular <coughs> geography. And that meant us working with other churches. That meant us church planting right down the street from our first church plant. And, and really, if you, as you get to know us, you'll, you'll realize our heart isn't to grow some great name or grow some great church or to be superstars. We, we could care less about that. In fact, that's why three of us out of the four in the eldership are really bivocational as, as Mike serves full-time in this capacity, we, our heart is that we would grow this way, that we would grow outward so that the gospel is accessible to people. That means if we really care about the zip codes or the geography we've drawn a circle around, it means we need other churches to grow. Does that make sense to everybody? If the church down the street doesn't grow, then we're failing. We want, we want the gospel to be accessible to as many people as possible. That every man, woman, and child in this geography would have a repeated opportunity to hear and see the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives and, and through our words and our actions and the way we treat each other. Does that make sense to everybody? So, so in this geography, we want to plant churches. We want to plant. We want to. We want to support other churches that stand on the word of God and see them grow and flourish. We want to work with other pastors. And again, it's not about missio, it's not about renovation church, it's really about the gospel being accessible. So that's our hearts. Does that make sense to everyone? Um, and so that's why we planted a church literally 15 minutes away from where our first church plant was. Because we believe that the northern suburbs, the western suburbs, we ended up buying a building in North Syracuse, right? So it, how, how great is it that as we were looking at Baldwinsville, Liverpool, Clay, God gives us a building in the middle of a neighborhood in North Syracuse where 10,000 people live right down the street. Isn't that awesome? And so we're just doing our best to do what he's asking us to do. And uh, that's a little bit of who we are. Um, so I'm done with the introduction. Now we're jumping back into Exodus. We have been walking through Exodus for, I don't know, a while. And we took a little break as we walked through Holy Week and went uh, through Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And now we're back to Exodus and we're kind of tracking through how God has been delivering his people. And we are at Exodus chapter 16. So if you could turn to your Bibles in Exodus chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be up here. Dad, come on up. Jim Kelly is going to read Exodus chapter 16 for us this morning. Good morning. 
right from heaven. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of people of of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to full to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the, toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, all at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the, new, when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they knew, for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But, they, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, 
and whoever gathered little had, had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till, till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and bread worms and stank, and it bread worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice, twice as much bread, two almers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over, lay aside, to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till morning. As Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to, the, to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Cana. That is the Lord's word. Amen. Amen. God, I just pray that you would bless our time this morning, that you would speak to us through your word. As you've revealed yourself in your word, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us this morning, that you would illuminate the scripture to our hearts in such a way that we draw closer to you that we recognize this morning more of who you are in our lives and that we would respond in such a way that we would live a life under your lordship. 
in a new way this morning. God, I pray that you would use my words, that you would somehow speak through these words this morning as we contemplate the scriptures, we contemplate the story of what happened in Exodus 16. God, I ask that you would speak. Do what you do in our hearts, what only you can do. In Jesus' name, everybody say it. Amen. Amen. So here we are in Exodus 16, and, and you see a, a familiar story of the people of Israel as they've come out of Egypt, and it's been, according to what we read here in this chapter, about a month. So they've been out for about a month, and they're in the wilderness, and they're hungry. And we just saw in the chapter before that they were thirsty, right? So they're in the wilderness, they're thirsty, they grumble, God gives them water, and here they are now, a month out, and they're in a particular situation that i got to imagine we don't um, find as familiar. Am I right? How many of you this morning are well-fed? I am consistently overserved when I eat. Um, I I eat a lot, and and I enjoy it very much. And, and and so I recognize here that the people of Israel have found themselves in um, a place of some serious adversity. They are facing something very uncomfortable, very uh, very adverse. And, and I got to be honest with you. I think. To some degree, I understand their grumbling. To some degree, I understand their, their, their displeasure that would result in grumbling. And then to some degree, I don't, as I look at the story. And I want to talk about that for a moment. Hunger isn't something we, right here in uh, North Syracuse this morning in 2015, experience all too often. Maybe some of us do. I know that I don't. Um, but I recognize that there is something very base and very human about what happens when you begin to get hungry. And I think what we see here in the, in the lives of the people of Israel as they're wandered through the wilderness now for about a month, as they're following God as a pillar of smoke in the day and a pillar of fire at night, I think what we recognize is that they've come to a place where they don't have food and they don't have any hope for food in their own minds. And, and how many of you guys recognize that when you experience pain or discomfort, it's very easy for us as humans to react um, in a, in a non-positive type way, right? I mean, when you get hungry or you feel discomfort or you feel adversity or you feel pain, I know when I do, I respond in kind with, with displeasure. I respond pessimistically. It's very easy for our minds to go to a place where, where what in the world is going on here? And, and we begin to get angry and we begin to grumble. And I recognize here that, that they're grumbling. And, and as they grumble here, I think some of us would think to ourselves, hey, listen, God showed up, right, in their lives so far. He has shown up through the plagues and, and taken them from, the, from, from Egypt and brought them into this place as they're heading towards the promised land. How many miraculous things happened before their eyes, right? And now we see God who is making himself known as their leader as he guides them through, through a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire, and yet as they get hungry and as they have no hope for food, they begin to grumble. There's no hope for the food situation to get better in their eyes. 
Meaning, they don't see around them a way that they can fix this. And they start saying to themselves, hey, would we have been better off back in Egypt sitting around meat pots? Which sounds great, right? <laughs> pots of meat. They're sitting around, and, and I think what we can see historically is there's really no reason for us to think that they ever lacked for food as they were slaves in Egypt. They sat around meat pots, they had as much food as they needed, and they say to themselves, were we better off back there? Should we have just died there uh, through the, under, the, under the plagues that, that God had sent to the people of Egypt? Had we just died there, would that have been better than him protecting us and providing for us while the plagues were happening, and then taking them from the land of Egypt to come out here in the middle of the desert and to be hungry, to hear our animals crying from hunger, to see our children starving, and to not see around us any answer to this food situation. Why would he have brought us out here just to die here? Maybe we'd have been better off back there. How many of you get it? I mean, this is an interesting situation that they're in. What we see in the Word of God is that he hears their grumbling. Isn't that great? God hears them. As they grumble, God hears them. As they cry out for help and recognize that they are in need and they don't see any answer, God hears their grumbling and he responds. God responds miraculously. And God responds in such a way that he provides for them in, in an amazing, miraculous way. And, and, and you see here in the Word of God, particularly in verses 4 through 5, that this bread from heaven is miraculous, and that God provides something that's, that's really not expected, and He provides something that is amazing. I think as we look at the people of Israel here, and we attempt to relate to this situation, there's something that God is teaching us. I think as we look at this narrative and as we reflect and get introspective in our own lives, there's some questions we need to ask ourselves. Because while we don't find ourselves in this particular situation, what we see here is that God is showing them in verse 6 that he is the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Egypt. They have grumbled. He's heard their grumbling. And he responds with provision. But why does he respond with provision? He responds and provides for them because he wants them to know he's the Lord. Amen? So here's what we see is God is rekindling this relationship with his people. As we've walked through Exodus, we've seen God making good on his promise to Abraham. And he's coming to his people. And he's again going to a group of people who have long forgotten who he was. And he is showing them that he is their God. That he is Lord. And as he's brought them out of the land of Egypt... He's begun to show them and develop this relationship with them. And now he's testing them. Why? To show them he is the Lord who brought them from the land of Egypt. Amen? Amen. Now, could God have provided manna before they grumbled? Yeah. He could have sent the quail and he could have sent the manna and they would have walked out and he could have provided that before they grumbled. But he didn't because he was testing them. He's showing them something. Isn't it amazing how adversity brings us to a place sometimes where we see things a little more clear? Is that true in your life? I know it's been true in mine. You know, I, I titled this message, I Got This, because sometimes that's just how we feel, right? I got this. I think one of the biggest deceits 
or one of the biggest lies that we buy into as Christians today is it, one of the things that, that demonstrates our fallenness more than anything else is our reliance on ourselves. Am I right? Yep. We rely on ourselves. We, I, I've grown up in, 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 a, in a culture, we've grown up in, a, in an atmosphere where self-reliance is king, where we walk through life and you just do what you got to do to get it done. And we live in a very individualistic, self-reliant type of culture. And so it breeds in us really sometimes even more of an inability to recognize the lordship of the God of the universe who really provides for us. It's tough for us sometimes to see that in plenty. It's tough for us sometimes to see that and recognize it when things are going great. In fact, I, I thought that when I was reading this and contemplating on it, uh, the first thing I thought of, and this is, might be strange, but I think it applies, is how Mike, Maisie, and I go to lunch a lot. And <laughs> Mike always... <laughs> Amen. And, and we, we do it well. We do lunch well. Amen. <laughs> I, I, I've told you guys before, and Joe Crab always gives me, always tells me I'm, uh, you know, talk about food a lot because I do. But I, I, I think about lunch often. About ten o'clock, ten thirty, I start thinking about it, and and so a lot of planning and insight goes into my lunch time. But one thing about lunch is, is by the time we get to noon, and I usually probably show up about twenty minutes, half hour late because I, it takes me a while sometimes, and I get there, I'm starving. Anybody else ravaging at lunchtime? Like, I want to eat. And so me and Mike will meet for lunch, and we'll sit down. We finally get to a place where we put in our order, and the food is brought, and Mike wants to pray. Shut up, Mike. <laughs> and I, I thought of this because Mike always prays for his meal. I, I always joke with him, I pray without ceasing. So I, I start eating as soon as the food, as soon as the food gets down in front of me, I'm, I'm housing it. And I'm usually about five bites in when Mike like, is like, okay, would you like to pray? And I'm like, seriously. Because, because I gotta sit there and not, I feel bad if I'm eating while he's praying, right? And, and so Mike will take a minute and, and he will thank God for his provision at lunchtime. The reason I thought of that is this. <clears throat> I need to do that a little more. I need to recognize in my life that the Lord of the universe, the God who loved me, has provided so graciously for me every single day. I am so well provided for. And I so often think that somehow this provision came from me. I'm so often deceived into believing that somehow I accomplished this, when the reality is every single day, even when I'm not hungry, I should stop and recognize that it's God who's given me every single thing I have in this life. Amen? In the time of plenty, it's a lot harder sometimes to recognize God's provision. As a youth pastor in Boston, I lived in a southwest suburb of Boston while I was in law school, and I youth pastored during the day. And went to school at night, and uh, and I had this group of students that we began to gather in a, a town called Norwood, Massachusetts. It's actually a beautiful little New England town that's actually in the Guinness Book of World Records. It's known for being a town where most people, high school sweethearts, get married and stay there, and people that grew up there live there forever. It's kind of this neat, uh, picturesque New England town where you would buy a 
two-bedroom piece of crap falling apart starter home for like four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars, right? <laughs> so <clears throat> this this is where we were able to live only because I got the parsonage. It was a youth pastor there. Otherwise, we weren't living there. <laughs> what I recognized is I gathered these students is that I had a group of teenagers who had grown up in the church and who had every single thing they could ever ask for, every single thing they could ever imagine. They had Xboxes, they had uh, flat screen TVs in their bedrooms, they had all the money, all the new sneakers, all the new clothes, went to a beautiful high school and grew up in this beautiful picturesque town. And here I was as a youth pastor sitting with these young people who inside were dying, <coughs> were cutting themselves, were psychologically a mess, were, were absolutely struggling with all kinds of internal things because all of this stuff that they had, they just it, it wasn't what they needed. Am I right? I used to gather them up once a year and fly them down to the Dominican Republic where I had a friend who in the 90s had planted a church and started a school, and I would take him into the worst barrio in the Dominican Republic, and we'd, we'd go and we'd, we'd stay there for a week, and they would get off the bus and see these children come running who, who didn't have birth certificates, couldn't go to school, didn't didn't really have sufficient clothing or sufficient food, and they would spend time hanging with these young people, and, and I, I would watch the, the, the faces of the teenagers that I was ministering to as they looked at me and said, why are these kids so incredibly happy? And, and I watched the teenagers from Boston become filled with so much joy as they encountered for the first time really adversity. It was hot. They were working hard. I was making them do stuff that they had never done before. And some of the teenagers would look at me and just be like, I want to stay. Sometimes it takes adversity for us to recognize our need for the Lord. And here we see the people of Israel, they're grumbling, they're hungry. They have come to an end of their selves. They can't provide for themselves anymore. They have come to the end of where they can do anything about their hunger. And they're going to die if something doesn't happen. And God hears their grumbling and he provides for them. And he has tested them in such a way that he says, I am the Lord. You will know that I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And I'm also the Lord who's going to continue to be your Lord and your God. Amen? And so how does he provide? He provides this manna from heaven. He provides quail from heaven. And, and at first we see that, that the quail comes, and then we see from then on for 40 years, manna comes. And he provides it in a particular way. He begins to set out a structure of how it is that they're going to gather this manna and how it is they're not supposed to gather this manna. And what we see here is God in his sovereignty is addressing his lordship in the fact that he is their lord. And he's doing it in such a way that he's teaching them now how to live. He's gone to a group of folks that are ag agriculturally astute. And he's doing something for them that's completely counterintuitive. He's coming to them and he's saying, I want you to only gather enough for that day, every morning. Now these guys would have been like, what are you talking about? As, as their history and their lives <coughs> in agriculture would show them is, is when they see a bunch of food laying on the ground, we're going to get as much as we can, right? We're going to gather it and we're going to store it up so that we can have it over a period of time. That would have been what their mind had told them they should do and what their experience had taught them. But God in his lordship gave them very specific instructions to test them. And he said, listen, in this testing, here's what I'm asking you to do. To see if you'll follow my commandments and do what I want you to do. 
I want you to rely on me every morning for your food and only take enough for that day. And they didn't, of course. Right? What happens? They go out, and some of them gather too much, and they, and they do what intuitively they think they should, and they bring it back, and they eat enough for the day, and then the next morning, the stuff that they had left over gets maggots and starts to stink, and Moses is angry with them. Like, hey, what did God say? Only take enough for that day. Here we see God demonstrating to them that he's Lord. And he's demonstrating to them a particular way in which he wants them to follow him. And if they do what he says, God is going to show himself true. And they're going to live the life uh, that is best for their own flourishing. But if they do it their own way, stuff's going to go bad. You see, God didn't give them what they expected in his provision. He gave them what they needed. Amen? I mean, how many of us struggle with this one? My son, who's seven, he, uh, little Nathan, the blonde-haired one that's usually doing somersaults all over the congregation, is downstairs now. Donuts for Nathan are like crack. <laughs> this kid loves donuts. When I bring home Dunkin' Donuts, he is, something switches in his mind, and he is passionate about a headlight, like no other human being is passionate about a headlight. This kid loves a donut. And so, the other yesterday, actually, I brought back a dozen donuts from Dunkin' Donuts in the morning before they woke up, and, and he woke up, and I was like, Nate, there's donuts. And it was just like, like yes. Now, now, the thing about Nathan, though, is one donut doesn't cut it, right? Like, he, he, he has a particular need. In his mind, all of these are his, and he's only going to allot to us what he deems necessary for us. Does that make sense? And, and so, for Nathan, I have, to, I have to calm him down a little bit. I have to say, listen, you can have one donut, and then everybody else is going to have a donut. And then you can come back, and when you come back, if there's donuts left over, maybe I'll give you a half a donut. He has no understanding of the concept of a half a donut. I mean, this is, to him, is, and Nathan will lose his mind over donuts. But as a parent, I have to hone him in and give him what he needs. He doesn't need any donuts. But to some degree, I have to, I have to parent him in such a way that if I understand something, as he's lost his mind about donuts, I have to be the dad and bring him back to a place of sanity, right? Like, you can't eat six donuts. You're going to get sick. We, you know, it, and, and what I think happens with us in our lives on a daily basis is we have need. We have base need. We see here this, this hunger that they have. But, but we have other needs. We have need for satisfaction in our lives. We have a need for somehow value to be added to our lives. We have a need, many of us, as we feel this felt need for recreation. We have a need from time to time for moments of peace and moments of rest. We have need to accomplish. We have other things in our lives that, that begin to run down the list of, of our daily needs. And I think in our recognition of God's lordship and what he's called us to do on a daily basis, 
It would be beneficial for us. It would be necessary for us to take a moment and to stop and say, God, what do you want me to do with my life today? Does that make sense? God provides for us what we need. And there's something we need to come to recognition of. God's smarter than we are. And he knows what we need in our lives. God, in his lordship, as we come under it, takes us through things, allows things in our life, tests us from time to time. And through everything that we go through, God provides what we need. But it's not always what we expect, is it? It's not always what we want. It's not always in the manner in which we would want it to happen. And, and i got to say, at 39 years old, younger than some and older than some here, as I look back on my life, what I can recognize in light of Scripture, as you see it happen in the lives of the people of Israel, as I look back on my life at 39 years old, what do I see? I see God's hand and His guidance and His provision in my life all the way through. Does anybody else see that in yours? God has an ability to, to be the Lord of our lives in the way that he's called us to. There's a particular way in which he's called us to live under his lordship. And it's he's designed life that's best for our flourishing and for us to succeed and for us to glorify him. And he's called us to do things in a particular way in response to his lordship. And as we obey him and as he provides for us, we see God do something in our lives that brings glory to him and demonstrates him to the rest of the world. Isn't that great news? But so many times, in so many ways, what are we doing? We're walking through life like the people of Israel, not recognizing the big pillar of smoke in front of us that's guiding us. And, and, and in our need, grumbling and complaining and, and wondering where God is. And then sometimes in our plenty, not recognizing his provision, but looking to our own selves in denial and in the lie of self-sufficiency saying, wow, I'm doing pretty good. Isn't that true? And I think as we look at this narrative, we need to take a step back. I know I need to take a step back. And recognize his provision in my life. Recognize that everything I hope for and the things that I think I want and think I need are in complete submission to him because he knows better. Amen? He knows what I need. He knows how I need to get it. And I need to not live in the self-deception of self-reliance. But I need to daily somehow come to a place where I don't just lay things that I want on the altar, but, but actually myself get up on the altar and, and rely on Him as Lord. Do you see that this morning in the Word? To the degree that you, as I use that word, rely, are sitting in the chair that you're sitting in this morning. And the weight of your body is in complete reliance on that chair working, isn't it? That's what God's asking us to do, is to, to lay our lives on Him. 
We completely rely on him. And here we see in Scripture, as God establishes his lordship over his people and begins this relationship anew, we see him teaching them, testing them to rely on him on a daily basis. Like, they got to wake up. they got to gather enough food for the day. And Omer is about two quarts. So they gather about two quarts of food. And what we see is this miraculous provision because we see the people that need more have everything they need and the people that need less have everything they need. And somehow, as they obey God, it all just works out and everybody gets enough. And then that food goes away. It melts away. They only took enough for the day. And then they have to go to sleep in the midst of the wilderness and in the midst of the desert. And you know what they have to do when they go to sleep? They have to trust that when they wake up the next morning, it's all going to be there again. Isn't that amazing? And then they get enough for that day. And then it goes away. And they have to wake up. Go to bed trusting that when they wake up in the morning, it's all going to be there again. And God comes through day after day after day after day as he teaches his people that he is the Lord who brought them from the land of Israel, that he is the one who will provide for them daily, that he is the one that they can rely on and that they can trust to be their provider for 40 years. Isn't that amazing? And you see in Psalm 105 that they sing of this, that God sent bread from heaven to provide. We see in Nehemiah as he goes back to rebuild the wall, as he prays in Nehemiah 9, he prays, and God, you are the God that provided manna from heaven. We see this moment historically for the people of Israel become something that becomes a theme in scripture that they sing about, that they pray about, and that they recognize is this is the sign that God is our Lord and he will provide for us because he sent bread from heaven every day for 40 years. Isn't that awesome? And, and today, God teaches us that he is the one who will provide your every need. I don't know what you may be struggling with this morning. But as you see in verses 14 through 23, God created an incredible system that they would be provided for every day. And maybe this morning, you're just struggling with stuff. Maybe this morning, you're reflecting on this and just thinking, I need this. I need that. I'm desperate for this. Maybe this morning, <coughs> you're not in the place where I talked about in terms of plenty. Maybe not in the context of food or, or anything like that, but maybe in your life, you've gotten to a place where you've come to the end of yourself. You've recognized that there's nothing you can do to fix it. There's nothing you can do to make it right, to make it better. Maybe this morning you just need to take a moment and see if it isn't God who's providing for you an opportunity. Maybe for the first time or maybe for the hundredth time to recognize that he's Lord in your life. That he is going to provide tomorrow what you need, and the next day what you need. That he is there. That he's ordering your steps. 
that he's orchestrating your life. Sometimes we need to get to the end of ourselves. I just watched the movie. And it's a story that I had read before. And it reminded me of so many stories I've heard. It was that uh, Zambrini died from World War II. How many of you guys saw the movie Unbroken? Yeah. And I, I, I love that moment. As you see this pretty self-reliant guy who would become a fighter because he was picked on for being Italian and not speaking English. His brother, you know, kind of said, listen, you got to stop drinking, smoking, and beat people up. Maybe you should start running. And he became a runner and, and became very uh, amazing as a runner and had gotten to the Olympics. And miraculously, to this day, still the youngest 19-year-old, still the youngest man to ever make the Olympic team for the 5,000-year race. And uh, he gets to the Olympics and certainly not even expected to place and definitely not win. He, uh, in the final lap, of his race runs the fastest lap ever run in that race to this day, to the point that Hitler recognized it and asked him to come over and meet him. And, and he shook Hitler's hand. It was just an interesting fact. Um, but then you see this you see this moment in his life. He goes on until he's 97 years old to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ for most of his life, the end of his life, after getting saved with a Billy Graham crusade. But you see this moment where his airplane crashes and he's out floating on an air raft um, with two other men, one of whom died before they were captured by the Japanese. And as he floats out there, uh, eating raw fish and dying of thirst and, and going through storms, and going through Japanese aircraft as they fly over them, shooting at them and trying to kill them and putting holes in their raft. You see this moment where he looks up as he's come to the end of himself and says, God, if you get me through this, I will serve you the rest of my days. How many of you guys remember seeing that? And he does when he comes home. He does get to a place where he recognizes the Lordship of Christ. <coughs> Some of us get to those moments in life where it becomes a lot easier to recognize that we don't got this. That we can't do it. But we need God. And when you get to that moment, it's a good thing. When we get to that moment, it's a good thing. Because then God gets to be the Lord and we get to recognize who he is. <coughs> I want to close with this. What do we really need? Like I, I listed a bunch of stuff we want. and We need to be fed. We need shelter. We need to live lives that bring glory to God and somehow bring satisfaction to ourselves. <coughs> God has enabled us to work that out as he becomes glorified in us, as John Piper says, when we're satisfied in him, he recognizes our desire for that. He uses it as we serve him and lay our lives down for him. But there's a real need that maybe all of us don't recognize that is by far the most desperate need that we have. And that is really what this story is all about. And it's the reason why this story tracks through all of Scripture. From Exodus to the Psalms to Nehemiah to Deuteronomy 8. You see this story that God sent bread from heaven to provide for his people because they needed it. And this theme runs throughout Scripture. 
to address really what this story is all about, really our greatest need in John chapter 6. Reach. What do we really need? Here's what I recognize in the Word of God this morning that I need today as much as I needed the day I first got down on my knees as a little boy and prayed to receive Jesus as my Savior. Here's what I recognize is that I'm a sinner. Is that because of the fall and because of my own sin, I have a disease that leads to death. I have an incurable disease that I can't cure myself that I can't fix, that I can't get out of. It's a disease that's bent towards self. It's a disease that's bent towards selfishness. It's a disease that wants to lie to me and tell me that I can save myself. I can do it on my own. It's a disease that, if not cured, leads to death. If not provided for, leads us to a place where we never get to be in the presence of God because He is a holy, perfect, awesome God, and we have all fallen short, according to Romans 3. And are incapable of doing good in and of ourselves. And, and we recognize through scripture, and really intuitively, I think we all get it, that we need a Savior because we can't save ourselves. Amen? Amen? That's our greatest need. And in the same way that the Israelites were starving in the desert and had come to the end of themselves and were going to die if God didn't provide for them bread from heaven, in John chapter 6, Jesus declares, I am the bread from heaven. Amen? That's right. God has provided for us the bread that if we eat it, we'll never be hungry again. The bread that if we partake of it, provides for us something we can never provide for ourselves. The bread that if we partake of it, does something in our lives that enables us to do something we can never do. And that, that is the bread that we would never hunger again. That is the bread that we would be provided for in our greatest need. That's our sin that we can't fix. And Jesus came as the provision from heaven, just like manna came from heaven. Jesus was the provision from heaven Amen. who came and who lived the life that each of us were incapable of living or pulling off in and of ourselves. And then he died the death we deserve to die. So we don't have to. God has provided for us. Amen? And as you read John chapter 6, verses 30 through 51, you'll see Jesus' declaration. In the whole line of scripture that comes from Exodus 16 all the way through, he finally declares, folks, this is what it's all been about. Your greatest need and God's greatest provision. Jesus is manna from heaven. Jesus is the bread from heaven. Jesus is how God has provided for us salvation. Amen? That's right. The biggest lie that we fall into in our synchristic society, in this, in this society that just kind of blends everything, makes everything true. And I think you see that as a theme in Exodus chapter 16, is there's this continuous theme of, I am the Lord who's brought you out of Egypt. I am the Lord who's provided for you. I am the Lord who's brought you out of Egypt. And you see this repetition in this chapter where God repeats to his people who are really coming from a polytheistic uh, a, a, a 
a culture that's that's syncretistic, that, that, that blends everything, and, and had long forgotten who God was, he repeats to these people that he is the one and only true God, right? I think we need to hear that this morning. As we pray, I think we need to hear that this morning. Jesus is the bread from heaven. He is the one true God. And in a culture where we want to make everything that anybody thinks true, because somehow it's more intellectual or makes more sense if everybody's right, than it does to believe what we believe God is telling us and to believe the truth of Scripture as Jesus says, I am the one true God. I have saved you. And I am the bread from heaven, the provision from God for you to be saved. We need to hear that same message from Exodus 16 this morning. He is the bread of life for you. Amen? He's the one true God who has provided everything you need. Even your greatest need and my greatest need. And that's his salvation. God, we come to you this morning with humility. Sometimes it's difficult for us to recognize what is your showing us that you're Lord and your testing of us, and what is just the circumstance we've gotten ourselves into that isn't a good place. Regardless, this morning we recognize your Lordship. We recognize your great provision. We recognize that you are leading us, that you're guiding us, that you are providing for us. And even though it's not always in the way that we would expect or want, we trust in the times of difficulty and the times of adversity that you're showing us who you are and we can rely on you. We can put the weight of our lives on you this morning. Whatever situation we may be in, we may find ourselves. If it's plenty, we recognize your provision. If it's want and need, we cry out to you for help because we know you are our helper. You are our provider. And you are the one, most of all, who's provided for our ultimate need. You're our salvation. Whether we come to you prayerfully, recognizing who you are, or if we come with grumbling, your response is the same. You love us. You've provided for us. And we admit in our lack of faith, we have grumbled. Despite how you have shown yourself so clearly and so strongly, sometimes we still don't see it. And this morning, we ask that you would forgive us for our lack of faith. Help us to recognize our need for you. 
and to believe you because you are always faithful. God, most of all, we thank you for salvation. Recognizing we could have done nothing to secure it, but you did it all. And our only response this morning is worship. Help us right now take a moment to reflect on your great provision and worship you. Worship you this morning as we come to the Lord's table. Worship you this morning as we sing. And as we often say here at Renovation Church, God, I pray that you would help each one of us to walk out of this place and to worship you with our lives. The way that we love our spouses, the way that we love our children, the way that we love our co-workers, the way that we serve those around us, the way that we demonstrate your glory to the world by humbly loving each other because you have provided so greatly for us and because of your love for us. In Jesus' name.